bow with me in prayer? Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> you know, for those of you that caught us on the stream uh, a couple of weeks ago, Steve preached last week. When I preached, I talked about suffering. That was the primary focus. And part of the reason why we see suffering come up so much in Peter's letter, in fact, more than just Peter's first letter, second letter as well, is because of what was going on at the time in the early church that Peter was writing. There's a good chance if you look at 2 Peter 1 that Peter was probably in prison, probably already facing his death, which Jesus had already told him about in John chapter 21. And so as he was writing, he was writing to a church that was under persecution, and he himself suffering under that persecution because he was in prison. Not only in prison, but the church was being persecuted throughout, and he probably had an idea of his impending death. And therefore, Peter's writing out of this perspective. And if you remember in the upper room when Jesus spoke in the upper room, of which we have one reading from that in John 15, we'll get to later, that Jesus talked about how you're going to suffer for my name. And so as disciples, we should assume that that's going to come in one way or another. And when Peter writes this letter that we have before us, 1 Peter, two weeks ago we talked about in chapter 2 there were two references to suffering, and now in chapter 3 we see two more references to suffering. That that was clearly on his mind as, he, as he's writing. If you look at the very beginning, the salutation of the letter, what you see in the salutation of the letter in 1 Peter 1 Right at the very beginning, he says, to the exiles in dispersion. What's he saying? Well, for the Jewish believer, they would go back to when the Assyrians conquered Israel. And they would go back to when the Babylonians conquered Judea. And what would happen during those times is the people would go in exile from their land because that way they couldn't organize a rebellion. They were dispersed. And so what was going on during this time, and you could see it in Rome several times, that the Jews and the Christians had to leave Rome. That's how Paul ran into uh, Aquila and Priscilla, for example, in Corinth. And then you would see it later on. But Peter and Paul both ended up in Rome because they were convinced that they needed to preach the gospel to Rome so that it would disperse throughout the empire. And so the reality is, is that they were persecuted. They were facing their death in Rome. So as Peter writes, he's thinking about those throughout the kingdom. This is not just the one place, like Paul's letter to the Corinthians or Paul's letter to the Romans. This was for everyone that was in the kingdom, everyone that was part of the church. And it's going out to the exiles. Now, it's rather interesting he uses that term because I think some people right now are feeling like they're exiles. You know, they're in isolation or they're so social distancing. They're not able to get with family or friends. And so people are feeling exiled. They're feeling isolated. And for those that are in prison, unless they have a house arrest where people can visit them, 
they're isolated. And a lot of people are experiencing that, so you can relate to that. Dispersed social distancing. We're dispersed. Only they were dispersed to foreign lands. They had to leave their home. We see that with persecuted Christians today. Look at what's happened to Sudan, for example. And sometimes in places like China or Pakistan where Christians are persecuted today and what they experience. We really have no context for that in our experience. But we do have a context for suffering. Because at one point or another, everyone suffers. And we suffer for different reasons. And we can probably relate, at least in part, to what Peter is writing here. So what happens when you're persecuted? What happens when you're suffering? What happens when you struggle? Sometimes we struggle or suffer in silence. Sometimes we suffer or struggle patiently. But a lot of times that's not how we respond. You ever notice that? What do we do a lot of times when we suffer or we struggle? Particularly if someone else is causing the suffering. We get angry. Now I know that might not happen to you. But a lot of us get angry. And what do we do when we get angry because we're suffering or struggling? Typically, we lash out. We lash out at others. And because, you know, most people don't lash out physically by striking someone else, you can lash out verbally. Think about that just for a second. You can lash out verbally in a variety of ways with rage. When you get angry, sometimes you rage. Sometimes you gossip or you slander. Sometimes you tell lies because you want to get back at someone, deceit. And you'll find throughout Scripture, there's references to all of those because they're destructive. They're destructive responses for what we're going through. They're not what God's desire is for us in terms of what it is we're going through. And so we lash out with our tongue. And that's kind of typical for a lot of us. And so Peter, in this particular section of Scripture, if you have it in your bulletin, if you have your Bible, if you have your Bible at home, you can always look this up. First Peter chapter 3. Peter writes, Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse. See, that's our typical response. When we experience evil, when we experience abuse, typically we respond in kind. And that's why what can be a small argument or a small disagreement can erupt into an argument, an ugly argument, a destructive argument, where people tear each other apart, where even battles or wars or feuds. I mean, you, go, you can think of many ways that people respond in an unhealthy way, towards something like this and think about how multiply those responses with our tongue. You know, Peter probably had that experience in a variety of ways. I think Peter was impetuous, so he probably could get angry. He could respond in a flip way, in a, in a way that could be destructive. I mean, after all, he was a fisherman. You know, the, the typical... Um, kind of traditional saying about they swear like a fisherman or they swear like a sailor. You ever heard that? A lot of you have if you've you know, been around, around a while. Uh, earlier in my life, um, 
Meredith, Meredith and I started dating, I think I was about 20 years old. And around the age of 18, um, I started to be convicted about my mouth. Because I don't know how many of you ever saw Beverly Hills Cop, the original version, not the one that they cleaned up for TV. I used to talk like Eddie Murphy. And, and I could swear with the best of them in the locker room when I was working in the restaurant in the back, you know, when you let off steam. And the Lord began to convict me of that. And so I really felt like the Lord actually not only convicted me about it, but he helped me to clean it up. So that it is so rare when I respond with swearing or cursing or anything like that today. Started dating Meredith uh, around 20 and by that time, the Lord had pretty much cleaned up my, my mouth. And she, she looked at me at one point and said, you don't swear. And I said, no. So we saw uh, Beverly Hills Cop together. And I said, that's the way I used to talk. She said, you did not. I said, yeah, I did. And when I play golf and I mess up occasionally, sometimes frequently, I don't let out an expletive. It's just not how I respond. But that's another way. I mean, swearing and cursing and telling dirty jokes on top of rage, on top of deceit, on top of gossip and slander. Think about all the ways that we use our tongue in destructive ways. It's not healthy. It's just not. It's not a good witness. It's not loving towards other people a lot of times. I want you to think about something. You know, my mind kind of goes in different directions when I'm uh, writing sermons. And as I was thinking about and praying about this, one of the things that came to my mind was James. James, who wrote the letter um, to, again, the dispersed church, the whole church. And he wrote in James 1, be angry, but do not sin. Now, I want you to picture something. I want you to picture Jesus and James growing up together. Because James is one of Jesus' brothers. And they drop a board on their foot. And Jesus says, ouch. Not James. Or hit his thumb with a hammer. And Jesus says, ooh, not James. And I think James, later in his life, when he thought about, by the Spirit, in hindsight, about his brother Jesus, he says, you know, I need to learn how to be angry but not sin. Because God got angry, Jesus got angry. Got angry at clearing the temple out. But how do I get angry but not sin? So he says that in chapter 1. Then by the time you get to James chapter 3, he's writing about the tongue. Spends a chapter on talking about the tongue and the use of the tongue. And how the tongue is so difficult to control. And it is. And so learning that about our lives, learning about how to, not only in how we treat people, but how we speak to people, speaking the truth in love. And so Peter goes on to say, let them seek peace and pursue it. You know, a lot of times, again, going back to when we're angry, we're not seeking peace. Reminds me of the movie Braveheart. Mel Gibson played William Wallace. And after his wife had gotten killed and 
there was injustice. He basically led a revolt against the British because of what happened to him and to his family and to his people. And so it's interesting. One time they were out, and I don't remember exactly where they were at this point, but William Wallace is about to walk away from his companions. And they say, where are you going? And I love the line, I'm going to pick a fight. I don't know how many of you rem remember that. It's a great line, I'm going to pick a fight. And he was smiling. How many of us want to pick a fight sometimes? Whether it's in the car, or whether it's in a relationship, whether it's we're angry about something else, we come home and we proverbial, proverbially kick the dog, we take it out on family. Or sometimes we just have anger that we've harbored for years and years and years. And instead of seeking peace, we seek trouble. Whether it's trouble that we bring into our own lives or trouble that we bring into our relationships, we seek trouble instead of seeking peace. Instead of learning how to be reconciled first with the Lord and then with other people and bearing that fruit in those relationships, love and peace, we pick a fight. And so we need to learn how to seek peace because as Peter goes on to say here, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. I think what we experience when we seek peace, because we're seeking the filling of the Holy Spirit, we begin to sense more and more the presence of the Lord in our lives because we're not walking around in anger, looking to be destructive. Our perspective is different. We want to honor the Lord. We want his eyes to be on us. Not hide from him, but his eyes on us. We want him to respond to our prayer because we have that heart that seeks him and seeks peace and seeks love. Not that it's easy. I'm not saying that. But that's his goal and challenge for our lives. There's another verse that goes along with this that I think is the key to the whole passage. But in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. That's verse 15. In your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. In other words, when you put your heart, fix your heart, allow Jesus to be the Lord of your life, that's how this begins to happen in our lives. Sanctify, set apart, make holy. That's what the word means. And so we allow the Lord to penetrate our heart. And it transforms us from the inside out. And if we're not allowing the Lord to fill our hearts, we begin to experience dryness in our lives. And that's when the anger has an easy foothold and seeking trouble instead of seeking peace. You know, there's a wonderful book that I read years ago, and Meredith has read on and off, and you can tell by how beat up this book is, called Streams in the Desert. And I know some of you know this devotional. But Streams in the Desert talk about how the Lord fills us in those areas in our lives that are parched, whether it be because we're going through challenge after challenge and we're worn down or whether we've drifted from the Lord actually because we've had a lot of pleasure and we're drifting from him because of that. 
or because we've gotten fixed in anger and unhealthy habits with what we do with our mouths. Whatever it is that we become parched and we need this stream in the desert. We need the filling of the Holy Spirit. We need the living water, which is the context, by the way, of John 15. Jesus had been talking about the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit and the sending of the Holy Spirit. In fact, this week in the church calendar, Thursday is the ascension, when Jesus has revealed himself throughout his post-resurrection appearances, and now he's ascending into heaven, as we say in the creed, and sitteth on the right hand of God, interceding for us. So he's there. He's on our side. He cares. He wants to impart his grace and his mercy and his Holy Spirit to us so, so that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's no longer us being the Lord of our lives. Set, sanctify. Christ is Lord in your heart. That's the key. That you know who the Lord is. You're not sitting on the throne, if you will, of your life. You're not calling the shots. You're not saying, well, this is okay for me. We qualify and we quantify. Or we tell the Lord how it is. But we let the Lord be the Lord. Not only of all that is, but individually our hearts and our lives. The exact opposite of Adam and Eve. Who wanted to be God. That we want Him to be Lord. We allow the Holy Spirit to fill us and transform us. That's what He wants for us. That's what He wants. So that He can bring us that peace that we long for, actually. And the love. And the joy. And the patience. Sort of. Love is patient. And so we seek that patience because we're filled with love. And that's when we can address the tongue when we're able to be patient and address the anger because we're wanting to be patient. So if you look at it, I mean, this is a very practical. Peter is trying to be very, very practical. That we turn to prayer. That we turn to his word. That we seek him and pursue. And that gets back to what Jesus said in the upper room, which I'm sure is at least in the back of Peter's mind as he's writing this, if not in the front of his mind. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. He is our source for life. That is Holy Spirit, the life-giving vine runs through and goes to the branches. That's us. So that we're able to do what? Produce fruit. That when you really realize it, when you, at times in your life, allow Him to be the Lord of your life, you realize in those times when you walk away from him, when you are fixed in unhealthy behavior, unhealthy attitude, unhealthy emotion, when you're fixed in that, that you realize apart from him you can do nothing, which is what Jesus says. Because we can't do it apart from him. We can't be how we need to be, to have the hearts and the minds and the attitudes that we need to have especially when we're suffering and we're worn down, especially. We need him. And that's why Jesus says, abide. Abide. You know, if you do it periodically, you're going to be like a yo-yo. 
But when you abide, when he lives with you, when he truly is the Lord of your heart, his spirit dwells in you, you're transformed. You're no longer seeking to be the Lord of your life. He's the vine. We're the branches. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Bearing fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of other believers. When we're living according to his righteousness, when we're speaking his word, speaking of his kingdom, we can bear fruit. We're not a hindrance in our relationships, in our witness, in our walk with him. Abide. In the midst of the coronavirus, if you feel isolated, reach out to him first. He'll lead you to find what you need amidst the desert in your life. If you're going through some anger because of all that's going on, you're inundated with information. You don't know how to respond. Trust him. Rest in him. Allow him to be the Lord. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in his word. He'll lead and guide you because that's what he wants for you. That's what he wants in your relationships with other people. In word and deed, we need to let him be the Lord and abide in him. Let's pray. Lord God, the coronavirus is bringing out the best in some, the not so best in others, and even the worst still in others. Because of the isolation, because of the economy, because of being locked in the household with people all the time, tensions can arise. Feelings of exile. That social distancing is more than a word. It's something that we long for because we were made for community. Lord, amidst this challenge of the coronavirus, our economy, our culture, our world, in the midst of the pervading of self-centered behavior, help us to not only know you as our Savior, to recognize the sin in our own lives, our need for you, that you died for us on the cross so that we might know you and know salvation and know eternal life and then live it now. That we would give up being the Lord of our lives and we would know you to be the Lord of our lives. That you are the vine, we are the branches. That your Holy Spirit flows through us and that we abide. Cause us to bear your fruit especially right now, the fruit of peace and the fruit of love and to restore the fruit of joy for those who are lacking. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.